In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little bit more about you to make that possible. So would you please do me a favor? Can you go to podsurvey.com slash Jamie? That's J-A-M-I-E, podsurvey.com slash Jamie, and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. You guys, you can buy a lot of great things on Amazon for $100. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's pod, P-O-D, survey.com slash Jamie, J-A-M-I-E. Guys, thanks for your help. Go to podsurvey.com slash Jamie. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey there, friends, and welcome to the very last episode of April 2021. We made it through this month. This was a long month for my family, and so I am excited to see May 1st come on the calendar tomorrow. You guys, my name is Jamie. I'm your host for the show, and we have a great show in store for you today. I talked to Sam Alberry. Sam is from the UK, and he's in the process of moving to Nashville, and we talk about that just for a second. He's been a pastor and apologist for over 15 years. On today's show, we talk about a book that Sam released last year. It's called Seven Myths About Singleness, and I recently read this book and knew I wanted to talk to him about this subject for sure. I also read another book that he released called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With, which I highly recommend as well. This book has seven myths, and today we talk through three of them. We talk through the myth of singleness is too hard, singleness means no intimacy, and singleness is easy. I want to let you know right now, if you're listening to this introduction and you're thinking, I'm not single, I think I'm going to skip this episode. Today, we talk about singleness and marriage. In fact, one of the things that he says is that whatever we've gotten wrong about singleness, we probably got the equivalent wrong about marriage. And so friends, I'm a married woman, been married for almost 20 years, and I got stuff out of this book and this conversation as well today. So I want to just let you know straight up that this conversation is for everyone. Even though our main conversation is about myths about singleness, we talk about the good news of marriage and singleness that God has for people. Okay, one of the things I want to tell you before we get started is that Mother's Day is right around the corner. Yes, my friends, it'll be here in like 10 days. So if you're looking for a great gift for your mom or for your wife or your daughter or the neighbor down the road that has been like a mom for your whole life, whoever you're looking for, this woman in your life, because we believe Mother's Day is more than just to celebrate our actual physical moms, but maybe those that have poured into us, we have the blog for you. In fact, we have three companies that I think you're going to love. Trove, which is an ethical fashion company, which if you've been around here for a while, you know that I absolutely love my Trove pajamas, but they have so many other things. They have shoes and accessories. They have home goods. And what I love about Trove is that they are intentional about creating jobs around the world to help bring a thriving economy to where that woman or man lives. You know, there's about half the world's population lives on $2 a day. So jobs are really, really important. And for an individual, a job means more than just an income to provide their family. It brings independence and confidence and empowerment. And Trove is working with people and paying fair wages to make beautiful, sustainable, affordable, stylish, and inclusive products. So check them out. The other one that I want to tell you about is... Piper and Leaf Tea Company. Now, you guys, I love tea all the time, iced tea, and it's almost summertime, and I crave iced tea in the summertime. Well, this is a great place to buy your tea. In fact, it's a family-run tea company, which I love that so much. They're creating gourmet blends that are simply divine to sip. You can do them iced on a steamy summer day or hot on a long winter evening, which hopefully 
Here being April 30th, we're through with that. At least we are down in the South here. All of their teas are blended with as many local ingredients as possible, straight from the garden, the farm, the forest, or the briar patch. I've had Piper and Leaf tea, and it is so very good. So that's another place you can think of. And then one more I want to tell you about, which is Duncan and Stone Paper Company. And they're a faith-based product line aimed specifically at capturing your life story through the art of journaling. This would be a phenomenal gift for any mom or grandma or woman in your life for Mother's Day. Duncan and Stone offers prompted and meaningful keepsake journals and paper good products for every generation of mom. Each journal captures the most important moments of every life stage. Okay, to make it so easy, you can go to jamieivy.com slash Mother's Day 2021, and you can find all of our recommendations. Second thing I want to tell you is this. You guys, I don't know if you've been seeing it, but we've been doing some bonus content from every episode, and we're putting it over on YouTube, and it's a question that we ask our guests that we can only see it there. And today I asked Sam a question, and it's over at youtube.com slash jamieivy. And in fact, the question I asked him is, is sex something that is to be missed out on if you are single. So check it out. See what he says over there. All right, guys. What an intro. Here's my conversation with Sam Alberry. Sam, welcome to the happy hour. Thanks for having me. This is fun, and we've been wanting to have you on for a while. I was telling you before we recorded, I read one of your books last year, uh, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? And you know what, Sam? I had the thought this morning that I think I'm going to make it required reading for my children. I've got teenagers, and I think I'm going to be like, guys, if you live here, you got to read this book. Are you down with that, Sam? I am, especially if they each have to have their own copy. That would particularly that would be please best me. For you. <laughs> I will buy four copies <laughs> so they can make their own notes in them. And feel free to have many more children. <laughs> that sounds good. In all honesty, welcome to the happy hour. I'm so glad you're here. Would you introduce yourself and tell us what you do and where you live and we'll jump in? Yeah, so my name is Sam Mulberry. I'm from the UK. I'm in the process of moving to Nashville, Tennessee, just waiting on visas and all those sorts of things. And I've been a pastor and an apologist over the last 10 or 15 years. And as and when I get let into Nashville, I'll be doing a kind of a hybrid role of serving in a local church alongside a wider apologetics kind of ministry. Uh, and that, can we say the church? It's Emmanuel Nashville. They all know I'm trying to get there. So um, <laughs> <laughs> now, is this yeah. the same Emmanuel Nashville that Barnabas Piper is at? I want to say no, but it is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I do have to claim knowledge of him. <laughs> He was on the show last summer, and I just, he makes me laugh. I listen to his podcast. Have you listened to their podcast that they do, Sam? I have, yeah, I have. So this is what yeah, I told yeah. Barnabas about his podcast when I would listen to it. When I first started listening to it, they would say things, and I would think, how do they get to say this and they don't get in trouble? Like, is anyone calling the principal on them? That's what I kept thinking about, but I was like, this is awesome. I love it. So I'm a fan of Barnabas, so I'm glad you get to be at his church. We love him, and we have to apologize for him a lot. <laughs> I think those are the best kind of pastors, to be honest with you. Let me just say that. Well, I'm excited about you moving to Nashville. I love Nashville. It's lovely. And I do want to ask you this. I want to talk to you today about singleness. We have a huge range of listeners to the happy hour, which I'm so thankful about. But I always hear my friends who are single, you know, saying, hey, let's talk about singleness some more. But I want to preface this, and you will do this as well, but I want to say it as the host, that if you are not single, that this episode is for you as well. I cannot stress that enough. So I want everyone to know if you are married, this is not a time to skip. This is a time to lean in. And I'm so excited about that. So you had a book that came out, I believe in maybe 2019, 18, seven minutes about singleness. Yes. And I've had it in my office for a while. And I just sat down and read it this week and loved it so much. And I want to start, this is where I want to start, Sam. 
is in your introduction, you say why this topic, this idea, this this thing to talk about, singleness, matters to everybody. And you gave two reasons. I'm going to do the second one first because the second one I can get. I can wrap my head around. You know, there it is. You said... Again, I'm reading the second reason first. You said, second, singleness directly affects all of us. The Bible repeatedly speaks of the local church as a body, which means that we aren't free to come and go from it without obligation. And honestly, I was like, yeah, but I don't know that I have thought about gifts and, you know, the talents that you're using things. And then you said this. You said the first. Here it is, Sam. First, most of us who are married will one day be single again. And I remembered... Queen Elizabeth, who's now single again, that's the worst example I could think of, I think. And I have no idea why that just came into my head. But I had never thought about that before, Sam. Am I the only one that has never thought about one day I, as a married woman, will be single again? I think we don't like to think that. I mean, it's a slightly morbid thought. Um, Right. But the fact is, either through bereavement or divorce, both of which are are tragic and, and unspeakably painful, at least half the people who are currently married will one day not be married. And actually, significantly more than half, probably, in terms of statistics so and i think we don't think about that and the best time to get your head around singleness is before you're plunged into it in a very painful involuntary way like your marriage finishing Mm -hmm. so much better to have your thinking clear ahead of time than in the midst of the crisis of finding yourself abruptly single again Yeah. You know, the second example that you said about how, you know, Paul talks about that we are body and we need each part. Like if we didn't have an arm, it wouldn't function the same way that we would if we had two arms as the people of the church. And this book, honestly, Seven Myths About Singleness, I feel like that from Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, I feel like that could summarize this book to me in a little bit of what I've read of like, hey, these are the seven myths. But so many times I was reading this and I was thinking, wow, I need single people in my life. And I was reading it going, wow, single people need me in their life as a married woman. And so did you come at this even with seven myths about singleness, thinking about that a lot? Because I felt that a lot when I read this. No, a lot of the thinking developed as I wrote it, to be honest. I was speaking on it around that time as well. And I think by writing. So I don't normally know what I think about something until I've tried writing about (laughs) it. And it was the act of writing. It kicked up a whole load of different issues and thoughts that I hadn't really thought of much myself. Um, So yeah, that's a big thing. We're designed to be interdependent. We're not meant to be, you know, completely independent and self-sufficient units as families. For those of us with families, we all need each other. Yeah. Yeah. You go through and you have seven myths. And I think I want to talk about three of them with you, if that's okay. And I want to start with singleness is too hard. I guess my question too, before we go into this myth, is you said you just kind of start writing, which Sam, listen, if I did that, it would be the most nonsensical outline of a book ever if I just sat down and started writing it I was thinking so you have a gift there it is I had done some thinking before for I started sure, writing. I'd sure. done a talk where I talked about four misconceptions about singleness so I had four myths when I went into <laughs> so the you book came up with up three with more yes <laughs> I love it I love it did you come up with these as things that you've walked through yourself or just people that you have ministered to along the years most of them are to do with things I've walked through myself and then that was confirmed just talking with lots of other people. I've been in pastoral ministry for 15 plus years now. So I've seen a lot of marriages and a lot of singles and walked with many through their respective marriages and, mm-hmm. and times of singleness. And it's also worth saying that if we 
ever got singleness wrong in our thinking in any way, it's almost certain that we've, by the very same process, also got marriage wrong. What do you mean by that? Well, our view of singleness and our view of marriage are bound up with one another. And if we have an unbiblically low view of singleness, it's almost always because we have an unbiblical expectation of what marriage is. So that's the other thing. I didn't know this when the book came out. But one of the things it's done is it's helped people think through marriage in a more healthy way, because these are two sides of the same coin. And so whatever we've got wrong about singleness, we've probably got the equivalent thing wrong about marriage. That's so good. That's so good. You know, it's interesting, even you saying that, I've been in church my whole life. I didn't start following Jesus till I was 21, but I grew up, you know, going to church every week with my family and I, and I knew a lot about God. And I don't remember hardly ever hearing anyone teach on singleness. In fact, you have a quote in here from a pastor really bashing singleness, you know, instead it was like one of the, I, I don't want to misquote him or you, but basically he was like, it's one of the greatest threats to the American family or the Christian family is singleness. And I remember thinking, I think I would have heard that over like the goodness and the blessing and the ability to be single and be thriving and happy and intimate with friendships and all that. I don't think I ever heard that, Sam. No, I've not heard much on it, to be honest, either. I mean, occasionally, if a, if a sermon series is going through First Corinthians at some point, they have to deal with chapter 7, which is where a lot of this teaching comes from. But unless that's happening, it, it tends not to come up. It, it's such a big part of life. I mean, the Bible has a lot to say about marriage, but it's not as if, you know, 70% of biblical texts right. are about marriage, and therefore we talk about marriage a ton more than we talk about singleness. But the, the plot line of the Bible has much to say about marriage and singleness. And that was one of the things that really hit me writing the book was just how entwined our view of each of those things is with our, our view of the gospel and the big story of the Bible. Mm. Yeah, so often we tend to make marriage this ultimate goal in life, and it's what you're striving for. Like, when you're getting married, what does it look like? And even in our own rhetoric that we've started using at our home, my husband and I, and again, our kids are still in high school, but it's more of like, if you get married— and that's just a concept that we've had to like bring into our parenting in the last year or two of waking up to this idea of like, that's a more realistic statement. And it actually takes a lot of pressure off kids to think like, okay, I have to go to college and get married. Like if I'm not married, especially in the South here, I'm in Texas, you know, especially in the South and you're going to be in Nashville. You know, if you're a Christian and you're in, you know, college and university and you're not married by 23, what's wrong with you? You know, and that is a very, very I think it's a damning stigma that can be so difficult for kids to get out from under. Okay, I want to jump in here. Your first one is singleness is too hard. Your first myth. I want to read you say this, and this goes along with what we were just talking about. You say the fact is both singleness and marriage have their own particular ups and downs. The temptation for many who are single is to compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And the temptation for some married people is to compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness, which is equally dangerous. The grass will often seem greener on the other side. So talk to me about this first myth that you said that singleness is too hard. Yeah, I think that's, I put that one first because it tends to be the one that comes up most immediately in conversations with people. But it's the idea that singleness is intrinsically bad mm. and therefore it's something to be endured in as much as it has to be experienced at all. And I think we've got a lot of that thinking from our culture rather than from scripture. In our culture, the idea of being romantically and sexually unattached is seen as to, you know, you're leading a, a less than fully human life. You need those things in order to be complete. And a lot of that thinking has seeped into the church. We've just switched the categories around and made it Christian marriage that you need to have a full life. So we need to recognize that the Bible has a surprisingly positive view of singleness. 
And if God calls it a gift to us, just as he calls marriage a gift to us, if we're constantly doing it down, we're out of sync with him. And it's one thing, you know, if I've got a a distant relative who gets me something for Christmas that is wholly inappropriate and unsuited to me just because they don't know me very well, it's fine for me to go, well, I can receive this gift with genuine appreciation for the thoughts, but I'm going to re-gift it to someone else or something like that. When this gift comes from the God who knows us intimately and exhaustively and loves us fully, Mm. we can't just sniff at it and say, well, can I exchange this for marriage, please? We can't do it down without, that's a failure to worship. (laughs) We receive from God what he gives us with humility because we know he's wiser than we are Mm. and with gratitude because we know he's generous to us. So we need to think about singleness in the way that God does. And God says it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, We've made it harder in many of our churches than it should be. And that's another issue that we have to reckon with. But the gift itself is not the problem. Mm. What ways have we made it harder? Well, this gets into some of the, the later myths. But in many ways, we've made marriage and the nuclear family the basic unit of church life Mm -hmm. such that if you're unmarried and don't have a family you don't really know where to fit in because you're sort of an afterthought we build the church around nuclear families and then we try and fit the singles into that right which means we've had the wrong starting point because actually if we're trying to fit singles into the church family we've definitionally already excluded them Right. If we're like, what do we do now with them? Yeah. Yeah. We just need a different starting point. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, we've imbibed more of our surrounding culture than we realize. We've made the nuclear family self-contained and Mm self-sufficient. And we've made the romantic relationship the same thing. So really culturally, once you've got your partner and or your kids, you pull up the metaphorical drawbridge you can tell I'm yep. English. And that's it now. You build high walls around that and you don't really let anybody else in and you don't really need anybody else. And that's a profoundly unbiblical way of thinking about marriage, the family, singleness, and church for that matter. Church, yeah, yeah. So I heard somebody say, I think it's Rebecca McLaughlin said recently, loneliness should be the one form of suffering no Christian ever has to experience. Wow. But I think our churches often make life lonely for singles. So interesting. And I don't know if you're going to know the answer to this, but you seem... Very, very smart, Sam. So I'm going to throw it out here to you. That's my accent. I'm I'm an idiot, really. (laughs) (laughs) Americans do think everyone with, you know, your accent, we're just like, oh my gosh, they're the smartest person I've ever met. Why do you think I want to move here? (laughs) (laughs) When you're talking about the church, and this is something that I've probably had my eyes open to more in the last, you know, five or six years as well. Is this, you know, we're talking culturally, even our churches have made this difficult. When we go back um, hundreds... 500, 600, 700 years with the church. Did we see this in early churches with this idolatry of marriage? Did we see this? Do you know the answer to that? I'm just throwing this out at you. There were other times in church history when I think we probably made an idol of singleness. So there were periods, I think, probably in the medieval church where if you were really spiritual, you took a vow of celibacy and, you know, didn't sully yourself with such worldly things as marriage. Mm. So that the pendulum's gone back and forth, I think, in different ways. But it's interesting. I've not done a study on this, and I would love someone to do this. Just as an observation, our domestic architecture has changed over the decades, over the centuries even, away from more communal forms of living to more 
isolated. Individualistic, yeah. isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I remember the, the previous time I was having to move house, I was looking at various apartments in the town where I was living in the UK and these were all brand new. They'd just been built. So I thought I'd go and have a look at them. They were all based around, this is where you sleep and you eat your dinner off your lap in front of the TV. There's no space for a dining table because mm. there's no space for guests. And it's where you and your partner do your life together, but no one else is doing their life with you. Whereas, you know, if you go back even just a couple of centuries, you had the concept of the hall. Mm-hmm. Downton Abbey is a sort of a grand expression of this, but the idea of, you know, actually communal areas and lots of people doing life together, obviously in previous years, extended family would have been part of the, your locality as well. Yeah. But there was an understanding you were doing life in a within a wider grouping of people than we tend to think today we've kind of really narrowed down our understanding of domesticity to really just the couple and if they add kids to that then you include that but it's a small bubble Mm. and i've seen this pastorally it puts a huge amount of pressure on parents couples to be everything to themselves to be all that they need and Mm. my previous church we had lots and lots of young families and each of them was trying to be completely self-sufficient and to be everything they could be to their kids. And, you know, the stress and pressure of that was huge. Yeah, it's true. I see it, you know, even in my, you know, my own family as well. And I can see the dynamics of how that would really idolize the family. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. 
here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. You said that we would get into the other ones by what we were talking about, and I agree that your third one was singleness means no intimacy. And to me, I would think that this would be pretty high on the list of people, a myth about a singleness. And I want to read again from your book. You said this. You said C.S. Lewis, as ever, hits the nail on the head. He says this, those who cannot conceive friendship as substantive love, but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. That our culture imagines that intimacy occurs only in the context of sexual attraction goes to show how little our culture actually understands and really experiences true friendship would assume that singleness means no intimacy because they would equate intimacy with sexual relations yeah and you know we should say this sam we haven't said this at all is that is that you and i both hold the same belief and you say this in your book that culturally singleness is like well you get to have sex you it's like you know you're just you just don't have that commitment you don't have that covenant but as as christ followers we believe that singleness also means you know, a, a sexually abstinent life. And so we haven't said that. So I just thought we should say that. Yeah, that's worth flagging up because uh, secular saying. singleness is very different to Christian singleness. 100%. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about this singleness means no intimacy and friendship and what that seems like. And maybe even how have people who are experiencing marriage, like you said earlier, maybe we have a faulty view of what intimacy actually is. I think we do. As you said, we've so identified intimacy with sexual intimacy that we've excluded the other forms of intimacy for which we were made and which the bible commends to us and friendship probably being the, the biggest example of that it's if you read through the book of proverbs it's astonishing how deep and rich the view of friendship is that you see in the book of proverbs this is not a superficial thing this is not mere familiarity in proverbs a friend is someone who knows your soul and they know your inner life and not just your outer life um, actually jesus gives us pretty much a definition of friendship in John's gospel. There's one of my favorite verses in the Bible is John 15, when Jesus says to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for, and whatever he says next will show us what he believes friendship to consist of. He says, I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So Jesus bases his view of friendship on disclosure. And the fact that he has disclosed all of this to his disciples now lifts them into the category of friendship. So the friend is the person you actually disclose things to, the, the person you really let into what's actually going on. Hmm. And when you define it that way, we have far fewer friends than we thought we did. And whatever Facebook says we have 500 of is not actually friends. And that's how we can say too, you can be married for 20 years and lack that type of friendship. I know that's a frightening thought. And yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen that. Another way of saying as well, if friendship should be at the heart of marriage, 
It's also true that marriage requires external friendships. We're not designed to have all of our emotional and relational needs met in just one other person. Or at least very few people can function that way. Again, one of Lewis's observations was that each of us is rich and complex enough that it takes more than one friend to draw out all that we are. And he noticed this with his friendship with Tolkien. When a mutual friend of theirs died, Lewis thought, oh, though that is a bereavement, maybe one upside will be that I get more of Tolkien. But he realized there was a whole side of Tolkien this mutual friend drew out that he couldn't. And he said, actually, I ended up getting less of Tolkien when it was just the two of us rather than when it had been the three. So there's a side of that. And I think it's, again, I think we've adopted a view of marriage where it's the whole you complete me thing. Mm-hmm. And there's almost an insecurity I've seen in some marriages. They feel threatened by the presence of external friendships because they feel as though, but I'm supposed to be everything to you. How can you possibly need another friend? And it's it's just deeply unhealthy. One of the things I say, if I'm doing stuff with college students and and people of that sort of age bracket, I'll often <laughs> say to them, Listen, if you marry someone thinking that person is going to fulfill you, you're going to be a nightmare to be married to. Because whatever else God put them on the planet for, it wasn't that they would be the person who fulfills you. That's a burden they're not designed to bear. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we need a bigger friend than some unsuspecting <laughs> poor spouses you, stumbling into. Did you see the movie Jerry Maguire? Yes, I love you that remember movie. when Renee Zellweger looks at Tom Cruise and says, "You complete me," you know, and every woman's like, "That's what I want." Yeah, and yet it's impossible. It is, and the fact that a it's impossible and yet b we want it is telling. And then along comes right. someone who. Long comes this man in Nazareth who describes himself as the bridegroom and we begin to realize where this is going. You see the woman at the well in John 4 who's had five or it's had five mm-hmm. husbands and is living with a, a sixth man and she meets the seventh one in Jesus. Mm. And it's kind of clear where this is going. The other five and six are not able, they don't have the load-bearing capacity to carry this woman's needs and her soul, but the seventh one can. Yeah, that's a message. Like, I just keep saying this because I want to reiterate, and I'm thankful that you wrote it this way. And as a married woman reading this, I got so much out of this book. And I think that's something that we can, whether you're single or in a marriage, is to see that like Jesus is the one who can carry those loads. Like Jesus is that. And we're talking about friendship and intimacy. And and there is this intimacy with Jesus. I just interviewed Jenny Owens. She is blind. And she grew up and she was bullied. But her mom told her one day, her mom said, you know, Jesus is always our friend. And sometimes, Jenny, he's going to be your only friend. And she said that has stuck with her for her whole life and that there's this intimacy with him that's never changing, that she can always have. Okay, I'm going to go back to another myth. You started the book with the first myth was singleness is too hard. And then you end it with singleness is easy. So (laughs) there must be enough people that think this is too hard. And then some people who think this is too easy. Why did you end with singleness is easy? For a couple of reasons. One is that in pastoral ministry, I remember um, several years ago, there was a a lady in my church who was wanting to marry an unbeliever. And I was trying to explain that I felt that was contrary to what God calls us to. And she said, well, you don't know what it's like. Um, You don't know what it's like to, to be in love with someone and to be told you can't marry them. And at this point, I hadn't shared my own story about wrestling with same-sex attraction. So I couldn't say to her, actually, I kind of do. And there are other people who I've just heard say along the way, oh, well, 
this is easy for you because you don't have kids and this is easy for you because it's just you. And there are some areas in life where it, it's easier, you know, getting out of the house for the day is, is easier when there's one of you rather than you've got right. little kids to sort out and organise. So I wanted to sort of just say that, you know, there are ups and downs of singleness and there are ups and downs of marriage. People don't understand they're at the ups of singleness and sometimes they don't understand or are not intuitive of the the particular downs that come with being single and some of the particular challenges. And to be honest, and I, I was asking for this, if I'm writing a chapter on the pains of singleness, as I was writing that part of the book, I, I just went through a, mm. a time of deep pain and sorrow. And I can see the Lord's hand in that because he had to look at some of these difficulties right in the eye. As I was writing that very chapter, I was going through some very deep pain. Um, so, And some of them are just not obvious things. It's not obvious to me what some of the stresses of marriage are unless a married person tells me. And it's the same with, with singleness. The trouble is some married people can think, well, my experience of singleness when I was 21 was this, not realizing that what someone's going through as a single person aged 35 or 55 is very different to your own right. memory of singleness when you were mm-hmm. early 20s or something. Yeah, different road. You share in that chapter, and I'm, I would love to hear you talk about it. You said, one of the scriptures I found myself returning to during this time of meltdown was Psalm 139. And you said you found these scriptures that David penned very liberating. What was liberating about them for you? Yeah, and there, there are obviously many places we can turn for comfort. That was a particular comfort because the thing I kept feeling, which I needed scripture to correct, was God doesn't know what he's putting me through. Mm. Uh, he doesn't understand my emotional needs, my friendship needs, my insecurities, my anxieties. And Psalm 139 just keeps hammering home. Actually, no, he knows you better than you know yourself. Mm. So he's not lacking any data. And sometimes, and this is often behind our sin, is this sneaking suspicion that we know a bit more about what's better for us than God does. He doesn't know what it's like being me. I feel like that's behind all of my like bad thoughts about God. He's holding out yeah. on me. Well, it was the original temptation, you know, did God right. really say? And of course it won't lead to death. So he doesn't really get you. Right. He doesn't really get what you need and what is good for you. He's just, you know, he's too far away. He's too remote. He's too transcendent. So Psalm 139 is just a huge help on that front because it it just reminds me that God knows me exhaustively. Mm. I know myself only partially. I have incomplete data. So I can trust him. And if he's putting me through something painful, I just have to trust that there's a good purpose behind it that will one day be apparent. may not be a, a day that is coming soon. But there will be good reasons why he's putting me through this. Good reasons that I will agree with when I've understood them. Right. You write in here about your friend, Kathy Keller, reminding you that God doesn't give us hypothetical grace, but only actual grace, which means he's given you what you need right now. I have a question for you as we finish up here. Writing this book and talking about singleness, and you said even when you were writing that particular chapter that it was a difficult season for you. What does it look like for you to daily, weekly, monthly, yearly remind yourself of these truths that you know to be true, even what we just talked about with Psalm 139? Like, how do you, as Sam, how do you continually remind yourself of these things? And listen, I don't just mean this in reference to singleness. I mean, this is for all of us, but how do you do that particularly? It's a combination of reminding myself from Scripture and and looking for the places in Scripture that will remind me of this. This isn't wishful thinking on my part. This is you know, God has written these things and told us this. And I need other people saying that into my head as well. I need people outside of my crazy brain 
to speak that truth into me as well. And it's much easier to say it to myself when there's other people saying it as well. So both of those things are helpful. It might be a particular scripture like Psalm 139. There are other passages that I will particularly lean on in those times of just feeling bewildered. Um, I was reading through Romans 8 one day and when Paul said, what can separate us from the love of God? He lists a whole bunch of stuff, you know, famine and nakedness and sword and all those kinds of things. I hadn't noticed the word distress in that list before. And I remember going through a period of very, very deep distress. And when you're in the midst of distress, it feels as though you must be doing something terribly wrong in your Christian life to be feeling that way. And just to see, okay, distress is not going to separate me from the love of God. So have a confused I am at my end. God isn't confused at his end. And this will not spin me out of control and away from the Lord. Whatever the distress is, it's not big enough and consuming enough and powerful enough to dislodge me from my place in God's heart. That is such good news. Sam, man, I'm so grateful for all of your work. I said at the beginning, I read your book, Why Does God Care to Our Sleep With? Seven Minutes About Singleness. You have a couple more, but you also have a book coming out this summer. And so it's called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves. Give us a little overview of what this book is about. Yeah, I've been wanting to think about this issue for a long time. And the gospel is good news, not just for our souls, but for our bodies. And Romans 8 talks about how we await our full adoption as sons, and then he, he adds the redemption of our bodies. Um, God's eternal plan for us includes our bodies. And the good news doesn't only begin in the age to come. The good news starts now. If God has made my body, it's not an accident. He did mean for me to be here. He meant for me to have this body with all of its with all of its flaws and works, it, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Again, Psalm 139. And, and David could say that of his fallen self. And there, there are so many interesting when I was writing this, how many people opened up to me about different ways they loathe their bodies, men and women. And again, it made me realize when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own, you were bought with a prize, so honor God with your body. Our bodies belong to Jesus, and there is not a kinder master we could have for our bodies than Jesus. If our bodies belong to Jesus, then the only person our bodies need to be pleasing to is Jesus. Our culture has a very particular standard of what is pleasing bodily to it, and it's an increasingly unrealistic standard. But the body that is pleasing to Jesus is the body that is consecrated to him. Mm. And I just think that's profoundly good news. And I try and touch on other issues, gender identity and all the various physical afflictions we go through and how, again, we see in Jesus full, ultimate bodily brokenness by which our broken bodies will one day be put back together again. Thank goodness. Wow. Well, I look forward to that as well because I read all of your work, Sam. So this is really good news. All right. We always end the show asking people what they're loving, what you're reading. Are you watching anything? Tell me what is getting your attention these days besides your work and all those things. I've been rewatching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I've introduced my housemate to it. And okay. that's just, it always just makes me smile. That show. Never seen it, but I do know what it is. It's in the same vein as The Office and Parks and Rec yes, and yes. those good things. So, um, that's been fun. The last few weeks have got into the habit of going for an early morning walk, not least as it's getting brighter and sunnier. Um, so just literally getting out of bed and immediately getting out of the door and going for a, a walk around the neighborhood for about an hour. Oh, I love that. Do you listen to anything or do you just be, is it quiet? 
most of the time I might listen to a podcast yeah. and other times I might listen to some music, but it's a way of just sort of settling myself before I then get into the day, get into the scriptures, um, clearing my head. And actually just, it's not a particularly exciting neighborhood to walk around, but <laughs> just noticing some of the details, particularly as we've moved into spring and seeing the, the blossoms and the, the leaves coming through and flowers in people's front yards and yeah. all those things. And just being more attentive to the physical beauty around us. That's been a nice thing to do. I love it. What are you reading? I'm reading a book on prayer by John Stark called The Possibility of Prayer, which okay. I actually have on my desk right here. There it is. Which is, I'm about three quarters of the way through. That has been very refreshing. Okay. I've just picked up this series of kind of, I'm so illiterate, but Karen Swallow Pryor has done editions of these classics with an introduction and, and some commentary from her. So I've just picked up that set and, and hope to, I think I'm going to start with Frankenstein because it's the okay, smallest one. Okay, I was wondering what you're going to start with. I have them all as well, and I love Karen so much. I know. And I've never read Frankenstein. Well, maybe I, it's like one of those books where I'm like, Maybe I quote unquote read it in high school, whatever that might mean, but I couldn't tell you what it was about. Yeah, I know yeah. I've seen a movie with Frankenstein, but right. that probably isn't good enough for a Karen. So, um, so I'm going to get stuck in. I'm not great at reading fiction, so I figured if Karen can hold my hand there and you help go. me through it, that would be no bad thing. And I love history, so I, I read a lot of biography. I'm reading a biography of Thomas Cranmer, who, as an Anglican, means a lot to me. He was the, the sort of one of the founding fathers of reformed anglicanism so enjoying that i love it well sam i have enjoyed talking with you today just about all kinds of things with church and relationships and intimacy and i value your work and i value the, the work that you're doing in the world and so we're fans of you at the happy hour and i'm so glad that you could join me today it's a privilege to be with you thank you for having me Okay, friends, I need to know if you're a married person and you listened, please tell me what you got out of this because I got so much out of this conversation and out of this book. One of the myths that we talked about today was that singleness means no intimacy. And so many times there's a confusion between intimacy and sex. And so for our YouTube bonus content, you can go over to youtube.com slash Jamie Ivy and see Sam answer the question where I asked him, is sex something to be missed out on in singleness? Great answer. You're going to love it. Check it out over there, youtube.com slash Jamie Ivy. Also, I want to do a correction. I said Jenny Owens is next week in this episode. Actually, she was last week. So I told some of her story that you already heard. But if you haven't listened to that episode, go and listen to it for sure. It's so, so very good. And don't forget, if you're interested in any of Sam's books, I've read two of them and highly recommend both of them. I talked about them in the show today, but there's new books that are coming out. You can pre-order it now. It releases June 29th. Today's show is edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper. Music for the show is written by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abby Castell. The whole thing is put together and produced by Lindsay Sweeney. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so grateful that you spent an hour with us today. Guys, have a happy hour with a friend. Come back next week. My guest is Deborah Faleda, and oh, when I interviewed her, it was so, so, so good. We talk about mental health, and it'll be our first show in May, and May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month, so make sure you come back for that. Have a happy hour. Guys, if you like this show, tell a friend about it. It's the number one way people hear about the happy hour. Thanks for being here today. See you guys next week. 